If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, if you will, please. Matthew, the 22nd chapter, and uh, we'll begin reading with verse 36. Master, one came to Jesus. He was a lawyer, and he asked Jesus a question. The previous verse says, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that's been spoken by the law and the prophets, it is all wrapped up in a nutshell. Jesus gives us the two most important aspects of the gospel in just two little commandments, but they're not little. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all thy mind. To maybe appreciate that, we might need to understand that love is a feeling which does not just spring up by the command of somebody else. You can't go to somebody and say, you better love me. Love is too independent for that. Love is too smart for that. Love is a feeling which does not respond to just any command. Love has an independence of its own. God created us with that independence. It's our free moral agency. We have the right to choose. And just think how fair God is by giving us that liberty. Love most generally wants a reason to love and the Bible, throughout the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, gives many reasons, loud and clear reasons, why we should love God. Romans 5.8, this is a pretty good reason why we all should love God. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Is that a good enough reason? God gave some of the very best reasons why we should love him. He wanted us all to love him. It was his will that none would perish, that none would miss the opportunity to be saved and to go to glory with him forever and ever. So those reasons that were given to us in the Bible here and there are fabulous reasons. What about 
The greatest text in the Bible, John 3, 16. It's a classic. For God so loved the world. For God so loved us while we were at our worst. While we were at our ugliest. God loved us. What a wonderful God. For God so loved the world. And just think that somebody came up to me, a mother came up to me the other day and said, I, I don't know how I could or any other mother, normal mother, could ever give their only son or daughter to die for people who were ugly, morally ugly. I don't know if I could do that. And we don't know what we can do short of the grace of God. Whatever God asks us to do, when God asked me to preach, I needed the, the grace of God like I never needed anything before. But to my surprise, here I am. And uh, I look back over that and it, it just blows my mind. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoso believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Here is the proof of love. God so loved us, he gave his only begotten son. That ought to break any parent's heart. That ought to help them to understand how it is and how easy it can be to really love God. Here is the, also in that verse, not only the proof of God's love, but the punishment of rejecting such a love. Those souls will perish. They will be lost in hell forever and ever. And here is the third point that's in that verse, and that is the reward, the reward for accepting God's love shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You and I shall never die. We go on living forever. Thank God for that. Even the moment that we die, our spirit goes back to the God who gave it, and all of its cognizance, all of its awareness, all of its remembrance, it goes there as well. And we go right into the very paradise of God. Jesus, if you will notice, was not asking for something that was an impossibility to give. Nowhere did Jesus ask anybody to do anything that was impossible. If God asks you to do something, you can do it. Now, maybe you won't want to do it, and maybe you will, or maybe you'll run from it. But if God nudges you, and you get a sense that God wants you to do something, and you may think it's an impossibility, go with God. Choose God. And one of the things that I said to God, Brother, Brother Bob, when he called me, first time I had to preach, I said, I can't do this, but because I have a feeling that you're asking me to do it, I'm willing to walk the plank. 
I'm willing to be thrown to the wolves. And those are the kinds of things that I said to myself to convince myself to keep choosing and keep walking and keep going in the direction that I could feel his spirit, sometimes very faintly, but nudging me along. If God's talking to you, listen. Amen? So Jesus wasn't asking for something that was an impossibility to give. Jesus was not forcing his teaching on men against their will. He was setting an ideal before them, which was in their power to attain with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And he even put an instinct. This is how I think many of us are so willing to sometimes go out on the plank. God created us with eternity in our hearts. There's an instinct in us, and in spite of all that is within our humanity, in spite of all the carnality that's in our humanity, in spite of the natural man being that enmity with God, the deepest feeling and the deepest want of the human heart is to love the Creator. So God's love cannot be constrained by a command only, but it can be won by a loving appeal. When the disciples saw the life of Christ, when they saw the only way that we would ever be able to connect and relate with God, deity had to die. Deity had to come down into this world incarnate. And that's why Isaiah said, unto us a son is born, and unto us a child is given. One was human, the other was divine. But God had to send divinity down in human flesh to help us to connect to trying to serve a God who is a spirit. And there's no way any of us would have ever bought into that without seeing Christ. That's why when the Pharisees asked him, who do you think you are? And are you God? And he would say, my father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. He drove the Pharisees and the Sadducees crazy. But had he not come down in the flesh, it would have been very, very difficult. So what the disciples, the sinners before being, being disciples, what everybody saw was the appealing love of God and the appealing love of God's Son, who made known to men and the wonderful things he did and how he healed the sick and, 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 and how he just went around doing exploits. And everything that he said, everything that he, he was doing, it was for the benefit of helping and making others better. And when they saw that, 
It made them want to love his father. Yet there are millions upon millions who do not love our God, who even hardly think of him at all. And professing believers who don't think of their Savior enough. But all the world have the opportunity to love God if they would open up their minds to him and feel the reality of his presence and the reality of his salvation. You can ask a million people out here if they love God without knowing anything about him. 95% of them will tell you, oh, yes, I love God. Do you keep his commandments? Oh, no, no, nobody can do that. I'm not perfect. And it is start with all that nonsense. The principle of our Lord's teaching about the duty of loving God, it doesn't lay just in the commandments themselves. It lays in the foundation of having a personal relationship and a godly character with that God. Amen? The very first questions our Lord asked just stop and look at some of the questions that God asked seekers. What were some of the first things he said? Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, for it's at hand. All the things that he said, many things. He said in another place, are you ready to sell all that you have and buy the field which contains that hidden treasure? Are you ready to take up your cross and follow me? And then he put a disclaimer in here. The birds of the air have nests. Amen? And what's the other animal? The fox has holes but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was just letting people know it's not going to be a party. It's not going to be a cakewalk. Your flesh is going to be pressed. You're going to be challenged. You're going to want to go your way and God's going to want you to go his way. And that's going to be a struggle. But if you obey God, it'll be well worth it. So what exactly did Jesus mean when he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart? It was obviously a call to be an all-absorbing love that controlled our very being. With all our heart means the seat of our emotions and our affections. 
the wholeheartedness of our love towards the only true and living God. Otherwise, we will be guilty of spiritual idolatry. If we set up any person, any place, or anything above our God, we're guilty of spiritual idolatry. We've got to love God more, and it's kind of an understood thing. We love our children tremendously, but God has to come first, even in that category. That's hard to accept. I don't have children, but I have pets, and I love them. No offense to your kids. It's a reverential love which awes us and thrills us. Not by God's potential terror and wrath, but God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace that he shows us. We don't delight just in God's works and here's where a lot of people miss it. We don't delight in just God's works, but in God himself. We don't delight in all the blessings, but God himself. See, we can get our arms filled up with the blessings of God and forget about God. We have all the material things. We have financial things. We have health. We have strength. We have this. We have that. The blessings of God can become a curse to us. So we can't love God just for his works and for his blessings. We got to love God for God himself. Secondly, quickly, what does it mean to love God with all thy soul? This deals primarily with our personalities, with our will, with our conscience. It is no longer his mercy and loving kindness. But now we love God for something else. Something else that amazes us, that humbles us. We love God not for all his blessings, not for all his goodness, but we love him because of his holiness and his purity that overwhelms us. He's the author, folks, of all the law and all of the holiness principles. That's why whenever a word in the Bible is repeated like verily, verily I say unto you. But there's a scripture in the Bible that's talking about God. I think it's in Isaiah said, it says, holy, holy, holy. Trying to describe the purity, the cleanliness, the holiness of God. 
And when we think about that, that's very humbling. We think of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love him for giving us such a great moral human example for us to follow. Somebody actually came down in the flesh and lived holy through all his days until God took him home. We love that we can be laborers together with such a powerful and holy God, a pure God. We are humbled to walk with a God whose moral perfection and holiness is so far above our own, but one day that will be different, much more different than it is here. But we will never achieve, I don't believe, to the level of the holiness of that God when we get there. But it'll be so much greater than what we're experiencing. And when we think of that, how much higher God's love is and holiness is, we pour out our love and affection in loving affection to the Godhead. It's to love them with the whole force of our moral convictions. And above all, it's to keep his commandments. This is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And their commandments are not grievous. We're not looking at his commandments as a, as a load, as something that's irksome. We love his commandments because they're right. We love his commandments because they assure a happy life. We love his commandments because it'll, it'll bring a fuller life. Not like God's trying to take something away from us. Obeying God's word is proof positive that we love God. Jesus said about the false believers in his day, he said, this people, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And what about love God with all thy mind? Now, I want you to hear me. There is an intellectual side to love. It is not blind. It is not foolish. It is reasonable. The more a man loves God, the more he knows and the more he learns about God. God expects us to use our intelligence right along with our salvation. It must be based on a rational grounds. Psalm 119, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against him. The intellectual side of the mind wants to know the truth. They want to know what God's Word is saying. They want to know what God's Word is teaching. 
They want to know what's right, what's wrong. That's why the Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. A lot of people that are living for God are not free. They're bound with all kinds of things. We all have intellectual difficulties. We understand that with our Christianity. But keeping your mind in your experience while walking with God, being sensible. Our intellectuality is making a contribution to our Christianity. And if you were like me when I got saved, there was no intellectuality, there was no brains. And yet I've learned and I've been preaching for years some of the more complicated prophecies and doctrines and I look out on a religious world, double LDs, PhDs, Greek scholars and they're a long way away from knowing what the truth is. Now that doesn't mean they're not saved. Some may be, some may not, because you've heard it said a hundred times, you only see what you see. God's not going to hold you accountable. The deepest desires of our hearts <clears throat> ought to be to please God. So, as I close with these three, what are the fundamental qualifications for serving God? And there's more than that. As a matter of fact, there may be many which are just incidental. Others are ornamental. Others may be useful. Others may be a distraction. Others may be a burden. All depends how much of God we understand. But there are a few that stand head and shoulders above all the rest. These qualifications. You don't have to go there, but it is a very interesting study. You all know Peter. You all know them the mess he kept making of his own life. And then that wonderful, beautiful 21st chapter in John where Peter said to the brethren, he had already backslid, and he said, well, I go a fishing. And the other said, we go with you. One fool and all the other fools were following But when he saw, or somebody saw Jesus was on the shore, and he yelled out, 
Have you any bread? And when Peter recognized who it was and he needed to be reconnected with Jesus, it's the Lord. And he jumped out of the boat and he swam to shore. Then Jesus had a conversation with him that he needed desperately to hear. And the first thing Jesus said Lovest thou me more than these? These what? These who? And I'm thinking in my mind that might have been at the Last Supper, but anyway, you, you get the gist. Lovest thou me more than these? These who? All these others? All these other disciples? Three times Jesus asked Peter, Lovest thou me? And everything hinges on the answer to it. Everything is determined by the degree to which we really love our Lord. The first thing that makes any kind of Christian a true Christian, be it a pastor, an evangelist, a missionary, Sunday school teachers, Christian workers, leaders, any, any, any Christian in any capacity, is not learning Oh, it's needed, but it's, it's not the ultimate here. Not eloquence. Not wisdom. Wisdom is definitely needed, but it's not the ultimate. Not organizing ability. Not a people pleaser. Not even a passion for souls. What is needed above all of that? is a love relationship and a love passion for Jesus himself. Because if you don't love Jesus with all your heart, you won't keep his commandments. Jesus has got to have your heart or you can't pull this thing off. None of us can pull it off. But a love relationship with Jesus himself. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can take the place of that. All else without that kind of love for our Lord is nothing but leaves. Just leaves waving, but the fruit on the tree is D-E-A-D, or R-O-T-T-E-N. The second thing that makes a true servant of the Lord, and this is really important, is a sense of ordination by Christ is a sense that you know when God called you and when God laid his hand on you and when God saved you. You knew your life was interrupted and something wonderful came into your heart. God ordained for you 
to be a child of God. He ordained for us to be saved. He ordained for us to be holy and without blame. Three times our Lord responded to Peter's answer about the love question. And three times Jesus hit the nail right on the head and the pain hit Peter right in the heart. Feed my lambs. Tend to my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter, you ran off. Then you went and warmed yourself by the devil's fire. And then when that young maiden said, oh, I know who you are, you lied and you cursed. You left your assignment. You left what I called you to do. You left your ordination. That wasn't just three random questions. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus was driving it home. There's something that interests me because it was in New York. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Did you ever read down in Water Street the story of the Water Street Rescue Mission in New York? One night years ago, there staggered into the mission a drunken criminal named Sam Hadley who there and then became truly converted and morally revolutionized. Later, that same Sam Hadley became the leader of the Water Street Mission where he did a simply amazing work for Christ. Hundreds of sodded drunkards and blackened criminals were saved and transformed. And when Sam Hadley died, he had one of the largest funerals ever seen in America. Let me tell you what he says about his ordination to Christian service, this writer says. On the night when he was converted, he had just suffered his third bout of delirium, tremen, trem, tremors. He had 125 forgeries against his name on one firm alone, and a list of crimes enough to put him in prison for the rest of his life. But at his conversion, he became so wonderfully saved. Can you imagine that? God can save you right out of the death sentence. He became so wonderfully saved that the very taste for drink and the lust for crime were plucked right out of his nature in one tremendous deliverance. That very night, Christ gave him his commission to preach. Here's what Sam Hadley said about that time, that moment. He said, I went out into the street and I looked up to the sky. I don't believe I had looked up for 10 years. A drunken man never looks up. He always looks down. It was a glorious starlit night. And it seemed to me that I could see Jesus looking at me and looking out at me through a million eyes. That night, right on the corner of Broadway and 32nd Street, I was ordained to preach the everlasting gospel, and I have never doubted it for an instant. 
I have never stood before an audience without that vision, without that calling, without that commission inspiring me. It is a great thing to have a sense of direct commission from Christ himself, to have the ordination of the pierced hand. We should seek to know it, and waiting on him in prayer will surely bring it if we are in the line of his will. Listen to Sam Hadley. He knew. He knew that God had touched him. And when you know, and Peter knew that, and that's why God called him ashore to educate him, bring him up to date, and to reinstate him back into his commission. I love that line. I have never stood before an audience without that vision inspiring me. I can remember the first time that I preached. And our niece, my wife's niece, Cynthia, and we were just married not very long. And as I was walking out to go preach, and I was a nervous wreck, and I said to my wife and to her niece, well, let's go take the lamb to the slaughter. And so we went. And I preached. Don't even remember what I preached. I have to look back in my records. But the greatest critic and heckler in the church came up to me after the service and said, I can't believe it. That was really good. Sure, Ivel Conger. And I said, yes. <laughs> but remembering how God delivered me, has been a sense of inspiration. And I've brought that inspiration into many pulpits when I was preaching the gospel. It all boils down to this. If we don't feel a divine connection to God, we will not value the things of God as a priority in our daily lives and in our walk with God. That's what frightens me the most when I see, and I know people have different schedules and I understand that and they work and I understand that. But when I see outsiders come in for a revival or come in for a camp meeting and there are more outsiders that come in for a camp meeting than our 230, 40 people that show up for camp meetings. And I can't help as a pastor to just assume that these people 
if they had a real divine connection with God, whatever God's doing, whatever God's program is, whatever is ordained in our walk with God, in our schedule, it would be a priority. I see them in Walmart. I see them walking their dog. And they should be in a camp meeting or in a revival or in a service. And you think I harp on it. And maybe you're right. But it's getting too late not to say it. There's too many people that are not feeling that divine connection to God because if they were connected to God, they would value the things of God that don't take up their whole week, unless it's a camp meeting revival, but those are happy times. We used to go to six and nine week revivals. I remember when the snow was two and a half, three feet deep. We didn't shut down the revival. We plowed our way to church and we had a great time. And I mean, the glory was in the camp. Today, totally distracted. Listen, we're in a lot of trouble. 